Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. And before we get started, I'm going to make an announcement real quick. We are having a class fellowship potluck. Um, let's see, is there a date on this thing? December 1st. And this is the sign-up for the potluck that's going to be coming around during the class. Okay? So this potluck sign-up is coming around, and please be sure to sign up and bring something really good. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. So let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you today. We honor you and we bless your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for our life and for our breath and for everything that you give us, Lord. We thank you for our families, for our jobs, our homes, our, our church. God, we thank you for your gracious kindness to us and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Jesus which washes away all of our sins and makes us right before you. We thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus, that he was willing to leave the glory of heaven and come to us and give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask, Lord, that this morning as we look into your word, that you would open our eyes, grant us light, from heaven, and help us to see you and to know you better. We thank you, God, we honor you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm not going to do a whole lot of review. Some of you are probably really happy about that. <clears throat> Um, the handouts today are um, pages 17 and pages 19. And uh, <clears throat> just briefly, we've been going through a survey of the person of Jesus Christ. And we have dealt with his incarnation, the fact that Jesus is the God-man. And so we talked about uh, his incarnation the virgin birth, we talked about Christ's two natures, that he uh, is the one unique being in all of history that has taken not only uh, the nature of God, who he was existing eternally in heaven as God, but he also came and took on an additional nature as man. And so Jesus is the God-man having two natures, the very nature of God and the nature of man. And then we talked about the fact that uh, Jesus pre-existed his existence on earth as a man. He existed in heaven forever as God the Son. And uh, beyond that, we looked at the scripture and how it puts forth the idea that Jesus the man is actually also God himself. And so we looked at the doctrine of the deity of Christ, just briefly, but... We did look at many, many scripture references where the scripture undeniably and very clearly teaches that Jesus is God. Amen? So then, along with that, we also looked at the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. And we looked at how the scripture describes him as a man, fully man, born of a woman, and lived a life as a man. And the fact that uh, yet in his humanity, Christ was tempted like we are, but yet was without sin. And of course, uh, last week, that was our lesson, the humanity of Christ, and we went over that in some detail. And uh, that brings us this morning to the, our, our lesson on the humility and exaltation of Christ. The humility and exaltation of Christ. It's kind of interesting to me that some of the newer theologies that I've been looking at really don't talk too much about this. And I noticed that some of the older theologies, one of which I'm going to recommend to you this morning, 
uh, has a lot to say about it. And this book here is called A Body of Divinity. It's written by Thomas Watson. Its date is going to be the mid-1600s. I'm sorry. First published as a part of A Body of Practical Divinity, 1692. But Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor in England, and uh, he is my favorite author, apart from God. <laughs> and um, But this little body of divinity is, if you will, it's like a mini-theology. It's kind of like a little systematic theology that, that he put together. And, and so it's not comprehensive, but what is here is really, really enlightening. Um, I have recommended this to you before, and I'll recommend it to you again. This is a tremendous resource to have in your library. Thomas Watson, A Body of Divinity. And I'm going to be quoting from him a bit uh, in this lesson on the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. If you're familiar with the Westminster uh, uh, Shorter Catechism, it actually has questions. I think it's question number 26 and question number 27, which ask, in what consists the humiliation of Christ and in what consists the exaltation of Christ? And if you will, they give answers. And so because of that, a lot of the old Puritan divines would speak about this and, and, and would set forth doctrines uh, which clearly come from the Scripture uh, about these truths. But I think it's a really profound thing to consider, and especially for those of us who've been Christians for some time and are seeking to grow in our faith and grow in our, our personal knowledge of Christ. As our, as our personal Savior and Lord. And what I mean by that is, is that as we worship Christ and we look in the Bible and we seek to learn and grow in our knowledge of Him, there are certain things that become clearer and clearer and clearer to us. And, and in this idea about the humiliation of Christ, something for us to really glean from this is, is that it should create in us a sense of awe and a sense of wonder when we consider the height uh, from which Christ was eternally exalted and, and the things that he actually performed to come and become a man and give himself as a sacrifice. This whole idea is called the humility or the humiliation or the condescension of Christ. Okay, And if you will, when we talk about the humility of Christ, this is what we're talking about, the condescension. In, in theology, many times it's called the condescension. And, um, and then when we talk about the exaltation of Christ, we're talking about his ascension, or should we say his reascension, right? Back to his former glory. And I'm going to help you get your hands around what the scripture has to say about that as well. So if you will, page 17, this morning we'll take off here and we'll talk about the humility of Christ, the condescension. In order to grasp the idea of Christ's humility, it is important to understand the exalted position of glory that he possessed prior to his humiliation. This is expressed in the term condescension. Christ condescended from heavenly glory to the realm of earth in order to become a man and redeem mankind from his sins. Now, just think about this for a minute. When Jesus existed as God the Son eternally in heaven, what must that be like? What must it be like to be the very being of God yourself? And what is the place of your home like? What is the place that you possess what is it like? What is the, the eternal kingship of God like? And I would suggest to you that in all of the earthly majesty that we could possibly imagine as, of the glory of a king does not even talk about the first tassel on the bottom of Jesus' robe in heaven. Are you with me? What I'm trying to say is that the glory of God in his infinite um, uh, uh, being is something far beyond anything we can comprehend. Listen, it is a majesty far beyond anything that we can comprehend. And so when you consider the humility of Christ 
it's important to understand the highly exalted place that he left to come here and do what he did. Are you with me? And, and all of this for what? Consider in all of this, for what purpose, for what reason did he do this? Did he owe us something that he should come and die for us? No. Amen? So as you, as you, I mean, there are many, many depths to, to plunge into here, to grasp a hold of this. And this is what I'm saying. There is a sense of awe and wonder which is in this doctrine, which is like no other. And let me tell you, the natural man has no idea the meaning of these things. Okay, but you, because you are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is there to teach you and guide you into these things and into this knowledge and bear witness of Christ so that you will worship Him and glorify Him. The Holy Spirit is here to take us into these depths and give us revelation and give us understanding of these things. And let me tell you, if your Christian life is dry, get your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Amen? Because I tell you, there's nothing that satisfies the human eye like the very sight of the one who made it. Amen? Okay, well, so Jesus uh, Christ condescended from heavenly glory to the realm of earth in order to become a man and redeem mankind from his sins. This is an extremely profound idea, one that indeed creates a sense of awe and wonder. As we have stated, the incarnation of Christ is a divine mystery that we can only comprehend in part. Before his incarnation, Jesus existed eternally as God the Son in heavenly glory. And this is what the scripture says in John 17, 5. It says, and now, Jesus is praying to God the Father. He says, and now, glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And there in Jesus' prayer, he's referring to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And I just, you know, again, this this glory is not really described in the Scripture so much. I mean, it is in many ways as we see the character of God described. Uh, and as we look at the person of the Lord Jesus, okay, he came to us and communicated to us in human terms what God was like. But one thing we haven't grasped is his heavenly majesty. Amen? Amen. And, and, and namely because he came first as a suffering servant, not as an exalted king. Amen? And we have yet to see him in all of his exalted glory. Amen? But let me tell you, the day is coming when every eye shall see. Amen? Well, in this state of glory... Jesus existed as God in all his heavenly majesty. He is the agent of the Godhead in creation and providence, being the one by whom all things were created, and also the one who now holds all things together. Consider the the fact that Jesus, God the Son, is ascribed in the scripture as the one who created everything, things on earth and things in heaven, things visible and invisible, right? And not only that, but he is the one who currently, the scripture says, holds all things together. He's the agent of the Godhead in creation, and he's the agent of the Godhead in providence. The ongoing sustaining of everything that exists, right? This is what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Right there on your handout. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay? There, the scripture makes a very clear statement that Jesus, the Son, is the the agent of the Godhead in creation and in providence. Do you see that? Okay, so then, in the eternal state of deity, Jesus possessed the sovereignty as God over everything. Understand? In Jesus' former glory in heaven before he came to the earth, he possessed the sovereignty as God over all. 
He always has had the highest name as God the Son. Why? Because His name is equivalent to that of God. Why? Because He Himself is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Amen? And so there's a very interesting thing to consider, and I want to kind of get get you thinking about this as we go through this lesson. But because Jesus possessed... This former glory in heaven, and always it was God the Son in heaven eternally existing as the sovereign Lord. Okay? He always had that power. So what is this thing about then the exaltation of Christ now? Well, you have to consider the condescension in the, in the middle of this. In other words, he left the glory of heaven. He came to the earth, and what happened? He, he took on an additional nature as a man, and he became the man Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, he became the man Christ Jesus. Okay? In other words, it says in John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God entered into time and space and became a man. He took on an additional nature. And that man did not always exist in heavenly glory as the sovereign God. That man was born of a woman in Jerusalem in a manger. Are you with me? And so when we talk about the ascension of Christ, or like I referred to the reascension of Christ, okay, what happened there was the man Christ Jesus is now exalted as head over all. Okay? So it's, again, a divine mystery, but one of which the Scripture has a lot to say. And, of course, we're just going to touch on some of it. But the statement here was that Jesus possessed the sovereignty as God over everything in his eternal state of deity. Myriads of angels attended him. Myriads of angels sang to the glory of his name. Of course, those references in Job. And he always was exalted as head over all. And this is what Jesus himself said in John thirty thirty one. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is what? Above all. What is he saying when he says he is above all? He's saying that his authority is higher than anyone else's. Right? He's saying that his power is greater than anyone else's. That he is above all. He's, he's exalted. He is what? Transcendent. Above everything that he has created. Amen? He has to be. He created it all. He must transcend it. Amen? Okay, well, so then. So, the idea then that Jesus would stoop down to earth and become a man is profound indeed. But this is exactly in what his humility and condescension consists. He left his highly exalted state to take the flesh of a man. Think about this. God, eternal God in heaven left heaven to come here and become a man. This is a very profound thing. If you know anything about the nature of God, this is a stooping down. Are you with me? He became one of the creatures. If if words like that can even be used. <laughs> Are you with me? It's, it's, it, is a, it is a marvel. He left His highly exalted state to take of the flesh of man. Thomas Watson, the beloved Puritan, comments on this. This is what he says. What king would be willing to wear sackcloth over his cloth of gold? But Christ did not disdain to take our flesh. Oh, love of Christ. He stripped himself of the robes of his glory and clothed himself in the rags of our humanity. He came not in the majesty of a king, attended with his lifeguard, but he came poor, not like the heir of heaven, but like one of an inferior descent. The place he was born in was poor, not the royal city Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, a poor, obscure place. He was born in an inn, and a manger was his cradle, 
the cobwebs his curtains, the beasts his companions. He descended of poor parents, God manifest in the flesh. That man should be made in God's image was a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which himself made. Christ taking flesh is a mystery we shall never fully understand till we come to heaven. Amen? So there are some very profound ideas for us to consider. This quote is something that is amazing to me. He stripped himself of the robes of his glory and clothed himself in the rags of our humanity. And if you will, there the humility of Christ is described. Jesus left the glory of heaven to redeem those who had shamed his image, spurned his holy law, and rejected his fellowship. Now, in all of this, we learn the virtues of humility and love. Jesus left the riches of heaven so that we could become rich with heavenly riches. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 8. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he for your sake became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Consider what is it that the apostle speaks of when he says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Here's what he speaks of, the humility of Christ. Well, Here humility shines upon us like a sunbeam. Watson goes on to comment on the reason why he came. And here, now he's talking about why Christ came, why Christ condescended to become a man. This is what he says. That he might take our flesh and redeem us. That he might instate us into a kingdom. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in a manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold love that passeth knowledge. Amen? If our, <clears throat> it was love in God the Father to send Christ and love in Christ that he came to be incarnate. Love was the intrinsic motive. Christ is God-man because he is a lover of man. Christ's taking flesh was a plot of free grace and a pure design of love. God himself, though almighty, was overcome with love. Christ incarnate is nothing but love covered with flesh. As Christ's assuming our human nature was a masterpiece of wisdom, so it was a monument of free grace. Christ took our flesh that he might make the human nature appear lovely to God and the divine nature appear lovely to man. Consider how the scripture describes the condescension of Christ. And here in Philippians chapter 2, the scripture comments on this condescension, starting in verse 6. There it says, who, speaking of Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here Paul is saying that Jesus was in the form of God and that he took the form of a bondservant and he was found in the likeness of men and that he was found in appearance as a man, even so far as to die. Well, 
Jesus, Paul says, was in the form of God and took the form of man. He exchanged a body of perfection for a frail body of pain and suffering. So think about this. Jesus was in heavenly glory. (laughs) He existed there as the eternally happy and satisfied God for all the ages and eons of eternity. There never was a time when he was not perfectly satisfied and infinitely filled with joy and peace and happiness. Amen? And in that place, he was always loved by the Father and by the Spirit. He was always uh, experiencing a love which is beyond anything we can comprehend and imagine. And this is what he left to become a man and come to the earth and what? Die in death. Imagine this. This is extremely profound. He took, he left a body of perfection for, and took on a frail body of pain and suffering. The scripture describes this in verse 7 as emptying himself. It says there, he emptied himself to come for us. And further, he took the form of a bondservant. Listen to this. King Jesus left his sovereign throne in heaven to become a servant of rebel men. What wondrous love is this? O my soul. And what is more than this? Hear, read, and fear. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here is the lowest degree of Christ's humility. The prince of life was slain in death. Barnes comments on this. He says, When he became a man... He emptied himself or laid aside the symbols of his glory now. When a man, he humbled himself. That is, though he was God appearing in the form of a man, a divine person on earth, yet he did not assume and assert the dignity and prerogatives appropriate to a divine being, but put himself in a condition of obedience. For such a being to obey law implied voluntary humiliation. See what he's saying? He's saying he's God, very God. What, what must he obey? He's God, very God. Why must he empty himself? He's God, very God. Why should he serve anyone? Amen? And so this is what he's saying, that, that uh, he put himself in a condition of obedience. For such a being to obey law implied what? Voluntary humiliation. He emptied himself. Jesus, the man who had all the rights and prerogatives as God, willingly became a servant, a bondservant, the lowest form of a servant, and became obedient. Obedient to what? Death. Obedient to the very purpose of God in redemption, to give his life as a sacrifice and die a brutal death at the hands of godless men. Jesus, the king, did that for us voluntarily. Amen? This family is humility like no humility. This family is the definition of humility. Amen? He goes on. And the greatness of his humiliation was shown by his becoming entirely obedient even till he died on the cross. Jesus' humility and obedience was of such steadfast character that he endured the scornful and degrading ordeal of crucifixion all the way to the point of death. But obedience to death is not the end of the depth of Christ's condescension. Yet even deeper shall we search this death he died having become sin for us. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place taking sin upon himself. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. It says that God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Consider that the pure and righteous holy God of heaven, the infinitely clean and undefiled spotless Son of God, became sin on our behalf. This is a wonder of amazement. And this he did, dying at the hands of godless men. Think about this. Think about the reality of what happened here. Holy God, pure, righteous, perfect, spotless God, the God of who, who, who is righteousness, the God who abhors sin, the God whose very nature defines what sin is because it is the opposite of him, the God who hates evil with all of his being. The scripture says he became sin on our behalf. That is an amazing thing. That is a wonder of amazement. Imagine this, a bleeding God. That's a term coined by a guy by the name of George Whitfield, loudmouth preacher. He used to ride around on his horse and try to get people saved. A bleeding God. Is that sunk in yet? A bleeding God. You know who that is on that cross? That's the creator of the universe. I don't know about you, but to me, that is an amazing thing to consider. You know how the scripture says he could have called 10,000 angels to be disposed at his side at any moment? I mean, the man, Christ Jesus, could have called 10,000 angels. The God, Christ Jesus, could have simply withdrew his breath and all things would return to the dust. And yet he hangs on that cross, scorned, put to shame, spat upon, while the dogs cast lots for his clothing. That's condescension. Oh wonder. Almighty God, the creator of life, slain by those he gifted with life. And this by willing submission. And just so we get this picture, I'll put this scripture, Luke 23:34. Jesus is dying on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Dear reader, Hold your hand over your mouth. And here learn the nature of true love and divine humility. Amen? So here we see the great depth which Jesus plunged to redeem us from our sins. Let us not forget the great price which he paid for our benefit. Let us adore him with so much that we become like him. Do you see Christ humbling himself? And will you be proud? Let us have this mind in us that was also in him. Amen. And of course, that's Paul's exhortation to us before he speaks about this condescension in Philippians 2. He says there in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Do you, family, see Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross? And do you adore him? 
Do you see him there in his humiliation, giving his life for you? And do you worship him, Christ the Lord and the Savior? If you do, be not proud. Don't lift up your heart, but humble yourself. Amen? Have this mind in you that was also in him. Let us aspire to this heavenly virtue and learn to consider others as better than ourselves. Let us make a sacrifice of our time and our money and our convenience to serve others and be like Jesus. Amen? Okay, uh, from there I'm going to move on and begin to talk about the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. If you will, these two lessons kind of both find their place in the text of Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to talk about that here. But just, you know, if you're considering the whole context of that section of Scripture. So here we'll talk about the exaltation of Christ, Jesus, the highest name. Jesus left the glory of heaven to humble himself and become obedient to death on a cross. The humility of Christ is an example of God's character like no other. But consider that the lowly state to which Christ humbled himself is not fit for a king. Should Jesus remain in that low estate to which he condescended forever, even though the scripture should promise that humility comes before honor? Proverbs 15:33. Jesus will, of course, be a man forever having taken the nature of man. But he shall not be a humbled man, but one who is greatly exalted. And this is what Paul goes on to say in that passage in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 9, he says, Therefore, or because of the condescension and the humility of Christ, he says, Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See here that God has exalted Christ in his humanity and given him a name among men and angels, which is above every name. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but I want you to think about this distinction Jesus is the one from heaven who is above all. Jesus as God the Son in his form of deity has always been the sovereign Lord. But Jesus the man who was born in a manger and who grew up in Israel and who lived and then died in our place on the cross, that man was not always highly exalted. In fact, he was born in a lowly manger. He was stripped of his robes of glory to take on our rags of humanity. He humbled himself. He emptied himself, the scripture says, and was found in in the likeness of men, found in the appearance as a man. He came and lowered himself. He humbled himself and became a servant. Okay? And the scripture says, Therefore, God highly exalted him. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus came and humbled himself before his creation. He became, came and humbled himself before mankind, the pinnacle of all of his created works. Jesus humbled himself before man. He went like a lamb to the slaughter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to God. And he entrusted himself to the purposes of God. But let me tell you, he humbled himself. The man Christ Jesus, although being in the form of God, humbled himself before his creation. He humbled himself before man. And therefore, God highly exalted him, the man Christ Jesus, and gave him a name which is above every name. I want you to get this point. That God has exalted Christ in His humanity 
and given him a name among men and angels, which is above every name. Okay? And it's not just men. It's above angels as well. In fact, by his death on the cross, he made a public spectacle of all of the fallen angels, including Satan himself. Because he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And he canceled out sin against man, fulfilling the law of God perfectly and paying the debt for it in total. Colossians 2.15 says he made a public spectacle of them. But here in Philippians 2, it specifies that this exalting that God has exalted him with is not just a name above man. But listen to what it says. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What knees? Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's a term describing all the heavenly beings, all the earthly beings, and all the beings in hell. Amen? And, and so that this, the extent of this exaltation is both men and angels. Listen, because Jesus became obedient to death to serve God's purpose in redemption as a man, God has therefore also highly exalted him. Now, consider with me the nature of this exaltation. What is it like? What is this exaltation of Christ like that God highly exalted him to? Well, uh, see here that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and those who are under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See here that now Jesus the man will be exalted by all his creatures and they shall be made to publicly confess his lordship and pay homage to his great name and this to the glory of God the Father. You see what's being said here? God didn't just give him a name that's above every name. But listen to what he's saying. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess what? That he is the Lord. You understand what's being said there? Very profound statement. It's not just that he's exalted to the right hand of God. And I know this is a hard thing for us to grasp right now because all of his enemies have not been put completely under his feet just yet, have they? As a matter of fact, we look around the world and we begin to wonder sometimes when that's going to happen. Amen? But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven. And you know what he's doing? Scripture says he's waiting. He's waiting. Because God has an appointed time for everything he does. You with me? And it ain't over yet. God's got a few more people to save before he comes and destroys. Understand? Because he's not going to put up with us forever. Amen? Let me tell you, his patience is beginning to run a little thin. If you want to use those terms. (laughs) Well, consider what a contrast... This exaltation of Christ. Consider what a contrast this is with his humiliation at Calvary. Jesus, who was scorned, shamed, and beaten to death by men, shall now be their exalted king and sovereign judge. Thomas Watson comments, Christ shall judge his judges. He shall judge Pilate that condemned him. Kings must leave their thrones and come to his bar. And this is the highest court of judicature from whence is no appeal. Think about that. You know, people on earth are always thinking they got a way out. But we do this ourselves. We're so often justifying ourselves. Are we not? You know, we always think, you know, we're going to get a second chance. We've got another way out. You know? Yeah. The world religions develop so many different systems of justifying themselves. And and telling themselves that somehow they're going to conquer death and hell. Let me tell you something. When you get to the court, 
to the bar of King Jesus, there will be no appeal, for he is the highest authority. Amen? Not only that, he's given the conditions by which we shall be judged. Crystal clear. Amen? And there is only one way to be saved on that day. Amen? Watson goes on. See the different state of Christ on earth and in heaven. Oh, how is the scene altered. When he was on earth, he lay in a manger. Now he sits on a throne. Then he was hated and scorned of men. Now he is adored by angels. Then his name was reproached. Now God has given him a name above every name. Then he came in the form of a servant, and as a servant stood with his basin and towel and washed his disciples' feet. Now he is clad in his prince's robes, and the kings of the earth cast their crowns before him. On earth he was a man of sorrows. Now he is anointed with the oil of gladness. On earth was his crucifixion, now his coronation. Then his father frowned upon him in desertion. Now he has set him at his right hand. Before he seemed to have no form or beauty in him. Now he is the brightness of the Father's glory. Oh, what a change is here. Him has God highly exalted. Amen? Amen. That's what the scripture says. Well, so then the scripture paints this picture for us that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Let's talk about this. The scripture speaks in many places of his exaltation now at the right hand of God. The term right hand means that God has given him the greatest honor, dignity, and power as princes set the next in honor and authority to themselves at their right hands. It was esteemed the place of the highest honor to be seated at the right hand of a prince. So, to be seated at the right hand of God means only that Jesus is exalted to the highest honor of the universe. So, we are told in scripture that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at God's right hand. And this is said in Mark 16:19 at the ascension of Christ. There it says, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And then again in Hebrews 12:2, actually there there are about uh, uh, 11 references uh, to this in the New Testament, but uh, I just picked out a couple. Hebrews 12:2 says, "Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Author and Perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." So the scripture paints this picture that Christ is at the right hand of God. He's at the highest place of authority and dignity under the authority of God the Father. Amen? That he is at the very right hand of the throne of God. Okay? Further, he has now been seated at God's right hand and is awaiting the complete subjection of his enemies under his feet. And this was the old messianic promise which came from Psalm chapter 110. Have you looked at the Psalm chapter 110? Why don't you turn there? I think I'd like to read it for you. So you can get a picture. And maybe you can have a little empathy for the Jews who were waiting for a Messiah who was going to come and take out the Romans. Because when they read about their Messiah in the scripture, they read things like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to, are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. 
He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That is, God will lift up the head of the Messiah over all his enemies. Amen? And this is what he said. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. This place of honor is in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy to the Jews and the high priest at his trial. There the Lord told them the truth, namely that they would see him sitting at the right hand of God. During his questioning before Caiaphas the high priest, this is the record of the account in Scripture, Matthew 26, 62, I'm sorry, 63 and following. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know what Jesus is referring to. It's that messianic vision in Daniel chapter 7. Amen? Where he is presented before the throne of God and and given the right hand the place of the right hand of the throne of God. And there the scripture says, he's one like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven and he will be given a kingdom that shall last forever and never be destroyed. Amen. He shall be given the very sovereignty of God over the kingdoms of under, on the whole earth. Right? And when Caiaphas and the Jews heard this, they were enraged because they knew what this prophecy was. Amen. Well, that's exactly what Jesus told them. Hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The scripture describes the full extent of this honor which the Father has bestowed upon him. His exaltation is of such nature that it is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. This is to say that the extent of his authority is infinite, being equaled to God himself. And this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and following. There it says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, that is God, put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now listen, When the New Testament speaks about the exaltation of the man Christ Jesus, this is how it describes his authority. Listen to what it says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. You see that? Is there a more fuller extent to which Christ could be exalted? It is literally saying that he is the sovereign one. You remember the word sovereign has a definition, right? Supreme authority. It means the one who possesses the most authority. Okay? Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And listen, God has highly exalted him to that highest place so that his rule, his dominion, his authority is higher than any other authority that there is. Listen, fear not, church. It's going to be a short day and Jesus is going to be on this earth and all his enemies are going to be put under his feet. Every last one of them. And death and hell is going to be thrown into the lake of fire and they shall no more harm on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Let me tell you, there is coming a day soon and very soon we are going to see the king. 
Don't be despairing by what you see. Listen, this is the plan of God. This is the purpose of God. He's not quite done. You see, he made a public spectacle on the cross. But let me tell you, when he comes in his glory, it's going to be a big show. It's going to be a big deal. Okay? And all these things that are happening right now, they're building up until that day. It's like birth pains, Jesus says. Until that day when the glory shines forth. You understand? And the king comes on a white horse. And you know what it says there on his leg? Right? King of kings and what? Lord of lords. And it's right there you read in the scripture, Revelation 19, he returns and what does he do? He grabs that antichrist and that false prophet and he throws him in the lake of fire. And then he sends a mighty angel to grab Satan and chain him for a thousand years. Let me tell you, that day is coming real soon. And not only that, you saints are going to rule and reign with him on the earth for a thousand years, physically on this earth. That's what the scripture says. By the way, I intend to expose that from the scripture for you next week when we talk about Jesus being the ruler of the nations. And I want you to see what the scripture has to say about that. Okay? But the point is, is don't lose heart. Okay? Don't lose heart. Let your faith and your strength be encouraged. Serve Christ Jesus right now in all humility and love and kindness and peace and grace. Okay? Listen, there's coming a day when Christ is coming, and let me tell you, His reward is with Him. He is going to reward your faithfulness. He's going to reward your life of suffering that you suffer for His name. Don't let the kingdoms of this world shake your faith because they have all been put in subjection under his feet. Amen? So not only did he possess this sovereignty from all eternity as God the Son, but now the man Christ Jesus sits at the throne of God with a name among his creatures that is exalted above every name. And they shall give him the glory due his name. And not a single creature shall fail to glorify him and confess his sovereign glory and pay homage to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And as you're reading through the book of Revelation, you will see this picture. It's very clearly portrayed in scripture in Revelation chapter 5. And listen to the nature of this seen in heaven and who all is there and what is going on. Okay, Revelation chapter 5, 9 and following. There it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou was slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion, forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you, that vision right there that John has of Christ's heavenly glory as the man Christ Jesus, that vision is the fulfillment of Paul's prophecy in in Philippians chapter 2, which says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You with me? Don't lose heart, saints. Jesus is coming soon. And all of his enemies are going to be dashed to pieces. And we are going to lie down in peace. 
Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God, we do praise you and honor you for the humiliation of our Lord. God, I pray that it would deeply affect us. I pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus, the bleeding God on the cross, and that there we would learn humility in our hearts. And that, God, I pray that we would believe your promise, that he is even now at your right hand in heaven, simply awaiting for his enemies to be put completely under his feet. And God, the promise that he will return soon, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory to gather his elect from the four winds and to take us to be with him forever. Oh Lord, help our hope to firmly be fixed upon him. We thank you for such glorious truth and such glorious promises as these. May they rule and reign in our daily life. May Jesus, the King, rule in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages. In his name we pray. Amen.